Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another live episode of the Ask Abhijit show. Today is episode 61. And today is an episode in which I have taken comments from the uh, questions from the comments. And I'm going to be answering those questions, questions that you all have asked in the comments. Before I do that, let's see who all is there. I can see Meghna Roy, Drishtiman, Om Zaveri, UC Big Girl, Megastar Rudra, Kalyan, Kunal. Pawan Shetty, Lovdeep Singh, Ruchita Gavande, Tejas, Unkar, Pranav, Adarsh, Mahi Shreshta, Ashish, Vanshi, Kalyan Karthik, Dictatorship is Best, Rudra, uh, Utkarsh, Haryom, Saurabh, uh, Nirmala Sitaraman, well, well, Sujata Venugopal, Naresh, Harshit, Saurabh, Sujata and uh, many Kite House, Dawn, and many other people. Great to see you all. Great to see you all. Thank you so much for being here. So before I get into the comments, I would like to make one point. I would like to thank my friend Rakesh for pointing out that I habitually mix up Ghazni and Gore. So Ghazni and Gore are two separate geographical locations, two separate towns in Gandhar, present-day Afghanistan. And I think in, in some videos, I have mixed these two up. When I speak, I tend to mix these two locations up. So, so just please be aware of it. And I also kind of mix up uh, the two terrorists, Ghazni and Ghori. So Mahmud of Ghazni was a Turk who lived in the 10th and 11th centuries. And Muhammad of Ghor was an Afghan who lived in the 12th and 13th centuries. So I kind of tend to mix up these two individuals as well. Ghori Ghaznavi, Ghor Ghazni. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato, you know. So, caveat emptor, be aware of that. And uh, I will try and remember that, but I probably will do that again in the future. So, just be aware of it. All right. With that, let's get into the questions. Let us go into the questions. And, uh, well, where shall we begin? I think we will begin where everybody with the question everyone is asking, which is this. So this is a question by Shubham, but it's I have got lots of different variations of this question. I typically don't comment about uh, breaking news and current events, but in this case, I will do that. So the question is, uh, so Shubham says, speak about this weak government who gave up against anti-nationals today. We expected good reforms, etc. Protests were bound to happen, but... They gave up, even though the majority is on their side. They betrayed us. What is next? Article 370 CAA will also be repealed. And Mr. Modi is the weakest prime minister until date. So that's the sentiment that is being expressed here. And many people feel betrayed. Many people feel upset that uh, these farm laws, the three farm laws were repealed yesterday. So the question is uh, essentially, first of all, why were the farm laws repealed? Secondly, uh, is Mr. Modi a weak prime minister? And thirdly, the question I'm getting is, has Mr. Modi failed? Right? So these are the questions I am getting. Let me position myself properly. All right. So first of all, the question is, why were the farm laws repealed? Well, we don't have, I don't have sufficient data to answer that question, but it appears that it is something to do with national security. It looks like it was a national security issue. It was going, uh, the, the situation was going in a direction that would have been problematic for the country from a national security perspective, right? Uh, 
uh, I mean, lots of people are speculating all kinds of things on social media. But I get the uh, feeling that there was something related to national security, which is why this step has been taken of repealing, of deciding to repeal the farm laws. So that is the, center, the, the, the feeling that I am getting. National security, of course, trumps everything else. And if there is a national security issue, then that information will not be made available to the public. National security is a sensitive issue. And if certain uh, developments are happening, then those should not be shared with the public, even though the government may look bad. So that is point number one, that it looks like there was something to do with national security. Uh, the farm laws were enacted more than a year ago, and there were protests, engineered protests and all. And eventually now they have been repealed for certain reasons. Uh, so is are all the other laws also going to be repealed? Article 370 and CA? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. So this issue had been kind of communalized and politicized, the, the farm laws. And that's why it looks like it's been repealed. Now, the second question is, <laughs> uh, the second uh, point that is being made is that uh, Mr. Modi is the weakest prime minister until date, based on what's happened yesterday. Okay, I understand why uh, certain people feel this way. And right now, everybody, lots of people are saying that on social media. Uh, if you look at social media, Twitter, etc., it's all abuzz with uh, with people taunting Mr. Modi and saying he has failed and he is the weak prime minister and all that, including certain uh, channels that I have been on in the past. So they are all saying that. And I think if you are uh, long-time viewers of of uh, of this channel, then you will be very well aware that I have in the past been extremely harshly critical of the government. In respect, with respect to its policies about education, with respect to its policies about culture, about rewriting history, not rewriting history, not doing that, and also the kind of stagnation we are seeing in the in the space uh, in the space race and many other other things. So I have been harshly critical of this government. Now, when it comes to this thing, the 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 uh, decision to repeal the farm laws. I am not going to be critical of the government. See, consider two scenarios. Consider two different prime ministers. Prime Minister A uh, makes a decision, enacts some laws, and there are protests that are engineered, and they threaten the stability and security of the country. Now, this prime minister, Prime Minister A, decides that I am a strong prime minister. No matter, no matter what happens. I will be firm and I will not take back the laws. No matter whatever happens, even if the country goes down in flames, I will not change my decision because I'm a strong prime minister. I will appear weak if I do that. So that is Prime Minister A. Prime Minister B says that, let me see how things go. And based on the developments, if the country is getting destabilized, then he says the national security and the national interest is more important than my personal image. I will apologize, even though I have done nothing wrong, and I will take back the laws. This is called a strategic retreat. So which prime minister do you prefer? Somebody who is more concerned about his image, and he will let the nation suffer for his image? Or a prime minister who is willing to take the blame and look weak, but... As long he will do it as as long as the national security and national interest is not compromised. Which prime minister would you prefer? It's as simple as that. 
I would prefer. I mean, it takes a great deal of courage and fortitude to apologize, even though you've done nothing wrong, and take back something that you yourself enacted. And and you know how people are going to react. Everybody is going to say, "What happened to fifty-six inches? What happened to the strong prime minister? His strongman image is broken." Blah 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 blah. He is willing to take that on his chest, right? He has owned this. He has owned the taking back of the laws. He see, there are certain politicians that when who are such that when things go well, when they win an election, they will take all the credit. But they, when they lose 10, 15, 20 elections, they will say it is the fault of the party. Do you know who those who those politicians are? I think you know who those politicians are. In the case of Mr. Modi, he has owned this. He has taken the blame on himself. He is not blaming his party. He is not blaming his ministers. He is saying that it is my decision to take back the farm laws, right? So that is called leadership. You may think he is weak or whatever, but you know what is the see? It's not over until it's over. So the last question is that has Mr. Modi failed, right? Has Mr. Modi failed? So let me give us a slightly strange and different example. This year we had the Olympic Games, right? in hockey india played germany in the bronze medal match and very quickly india went 1-0 down then india was able to equalize it became 1-1 and then germany slammed in two goals and india was 1-3 down with less than half the match to go so had india failed when this these big setbacks happened 3-1 down 3-1 is a terrible uh, you know uh, it is it is a very precarious situation it's almost as good as lost and less than half the match was left so should india have decided that oh we have lost and we should give up no india fought back and even though india was 1-3 down they eventually won 5-4 so the match has a certain duration in in between in in the in during the course of the match all kinds of things happen there are ups and downs but you keep fighting so mr modi has been elected prime minister for a 5 year term right that 5 year terms ends in 2024 so i think the time to decide whether mr modi has succeeded or failed is in 2024 right now we are at the end of 2021 there is a long time to go picture abhi baki hai friends <laughs> like they say so i think what i would recommend is that we should not react to everything emotionally life is full of ups and downs it is all part and parcel of the game so right now i agree there is a setback mr modi wanted to enact the farm laws they were beneficial for the for the farmers for the small farmers it is the karorpati farmers the millionaire and billionaire farmers who have caused created this the situation and it is not only them who have done it there is an entire international ecosystem behind them who have done that the, the toolkit ecosystem it is in the face of these these issues that mr modi has done a strategic retreat this is called a strategic retreat it is a five year military campaign in a military campaign there are lots of battles there is no no general in the entire universe who has won every single battle chinggis khan lost his army lost the battle of parwan against the terrorist jalaluddin khwarizmi but in the end chinggis khan won So Genghis Khan won every single military campaign, but inside every military campaign there are dozens of battles. You win some, you lose some. What is important is that you win the military campaign. So there are long-term objectives at play, right? 
see india is on a path upwards slow but steady it is not a three month game it is a 100 year game it's a 100 year marathon think of it like that ups and downs keep keep coming so don't get emotional don't give up keep your eyes on the long term target that's what i would say so i disagree that mr modi is the weakest prime minister until date i think he's one of the strongest prime ministers until date he shows what real leadership is you may disagree with that this is my assessment i i'm perfectly fine if you disagree with that i i do i have nothing against that my personal assessment is that, is that mr modi is a very good leader he's one of the strongest prime ministers we have had one of the best leaders we have had this is clearly a setback this is not what he would have wanted but there is a long way to go the time to decide whether he has succeeded or failed is in 2024 until then let's wait and watch and let's be positive shall we all right question number 2 okay this is by utkarsh and karan two separate questions but related questions so utkarsh asks that in your opinion what is the best way to uplift the farmers of india and the other question by karan is that how can we remove poverty from the country from our country and these are interrelated questions see in 2018 more than 50% of the country was engaged in agricultural uh, in the agriculture sector sector and associated sectors and the total output the total percentage of the india's gdp contribution of the sector was about 16 17% so more than half the country is doing this work but only 15 16 17% is the contribution to the gdp and i think as of today or the latest figures that we have was that uh, about 44 45% of the country is engaged in agriculture and associated allied sectors and the contribution to the gdp is just like that you know 14 15 16% or some, something like that thereabouts give or take so it is clear that the average farmer is engaged in a very low income activity it tells you that the average farmer is a poor person it is not something that is uh, giving them uh, the quality of life that one would want to have in a prosperous civilization right so it is clear that we need to uplift these people from well from either poverty or near poverty so if we were to uplift the agricultural uh, the people involved in the agriculture sector it would bring a significant portion of the country country's population out of poverty or into a into a better economic uh, uh situation so what is the best way to do this in my opinion the best way to do this is to take people out of agriculture we don't need 45% of the population involved in agriculture this is the 21st century we have machines we have technology i think 2% or 3% of the population of the country should be involved in agriculture we can mechanize everything we can automate everything this is the 21st century so let 2 or 3% of the population be involved in agriculture let the private companies in there should be obviously no exploitation of everybody any of anybody so most of the people need to be taken out of agriculture and they need to be set to work in other sectors india needs to become a manufacturing powerhouse it is manufacturing and industries that uplifts the nation that skyrockets your gdp germany is a manufacturing powerhouse china is a manufacturing powerhouse japan used to be a manufacturing powerhouse the right way to uplift the population 
and to take a country out of the low income domain into the middle or high income domain is to is to invest f- large scale into uh, into 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 manufacturing and industries so all of these people who are languishing in very poor uh, financial straits in the agriculture sector they need to be rescued from the agriculture sector and their talents should be better utilized elsewhere that's what needs to happen so that's why india needs to become an industrial nation a nation that is very much into manufacturing all kinds of goods right that's what needs to happen so in my opinion that is the right way to uplift the farmers of the country and to remove poverty from the country and the other thing that needs to happen for the sake of the gods is india needs to end corruption the entire government governance system the entire governance machinery not entire but much of it much of it let's say it runs on corruption what is corruption something that happens outside of the laws we all know that everybody knows that so corruption where is india's war on corruption and i'm not saying that the central government has any corruption for the first time in 70 i don't know how many years we have a clean central government for the first time in god knows how many decades we have a proper clean central government but as you come down the situation is different there is corruption everywhere and it especially impacts the the common man and woman at the grassroots level so when uh, is india going to declare war on corruption so so once that happens a lot of the money that is being wasted it is going into the pockets of people who contribute nothing to the country that money will actually be used for the betterment of the country for what it actually is meant to be used so these are the things that need to happen and if we do that if if the government decides to do that at some point in time then we will be able to eradicate poverty and become a middle income nation eventually a high income nation and the civilization we have always been so these are the things that need to happen jyotish says please explain civil society as a new frontier of war fourth generation war and is india losing this war well the farm laws were repealed that is civil society as a frontier of war what's been happening in delhi in the the past two three winters you had the shahin bagh riots the shahin bagh thing or whatever then you had the 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 farmer protests do you know how much organization it takes to organize a bunch of people and organize protests you know how much money it takes to to feed all these people so that they can sit for months and months on end all the coordination that is required who is doing all this do you even ask yourselves there is some some something behind this something at play and this is what is meant by the civil society as a new frontier of war there are forces outside of india from outside of india they are controlling manipulating all these things money is flowing in unlimited money is flowing in right all the coordination is being done by various uh groups and organizations that are exterior to india they are mainly in the west some of them are in other countries also some of them are in canada some of them are in the uk some of them are in north america other places some of them are being organized from pakistan and china all of these forces are at work trying to manipulate indian media 
trying to uh, manipulate indian uh, perceptions and uh, the mindset and opinions via social media via via the mainstream media and all these protests etc are being organized they don't arise spontaneously by the way all these protests are organized they are engineered so this is what is meant by civil society as a frontier of war is india losing this, this war right now right now it seems that india is not able to do much to counter this so that is something that needs to change i think it was mr ajit doval who had spoken about this just a couple of days before the farm laws were repealed so all this politicization politicization of the farm laws thing all the communalization etc it is all it is all coordinated and it is all done from various other locations of the sort of india because today the world is transparent there are no real borders anymore the world is one big village you can talk instantaneously to somebody from any part of the world at any time you want right and you can interact with them at a moment's notice on social media etc 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 so everything can be coordinated today worldwide globally so that is the frontier the new frontier of war and today it is very easy to uh, to uh, influence the outcome of elections in other countries Uh, recently there was some african country that banned facebook and twitter because they were trying to influence elections there and the same thing is going to happen in india in 2024 be ready for it they are going to try and demoralize you they are going to make, make you feel that uh, what whoever whichever politician you you prefer they are trying to manipulate your opinions about that politician or that party what whichever one it is i don't care which it is everybody has the right to their own political opinions you may be right or left or center or whatever you may have certain political parties that you prefer or certain th- parties that you don't prefer and it is very easy to manipulate your opinions based on the kind of trends that uh, the things that trend on social media the kind of hashtags that trend on social media the kind of uh, influencers you watch on youtube etc and so on and so forth so this is what is meant by civil society as the new frontier of war you can actually engineer the mood of a nation at a given at a given moment using trends and all that so that is what india needs to wake up to or people say that india i mean india is one of the best it sectors etc and all but well you know india is has still got a lot of catching up to do when it comes to this this is all propaganda this is propaganda warfare information warfare and so on so india needs to uh get its act together right now india is not doing very well and you can see the what happened just yesterday so yeah good question akash says are the citizens of china as patriotic as indians are this question arises from the news that many chinese soldiers are drafted into the military against their will is there any hatred towards a dictator like rule of the chinese communist party in common chinese people what are the chances of a coup civilian or military a good question so so it's like this i just spoke about uh, uh about uh, the civil society as the frontier of warfare in the case of china they are a closed society they don't allow google twitter facebook any of this western social media giants they have their own social media and that is the reason why they are to a large extent immune to the regime to the regime change attempts that the west keeps engineering in places like india 
in india they try and create, they try and manufacture opinion they try and manipulate your your uh, perception of, about things and so on and so forth in china that doesn't happen in india we have an education system that teaches you to hate your own country and to be ashamed of your culture in china the education teacher uh, education system teaches students to be proud of being chinese and to worship the chinese communist party education is very 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 powerful it is a very powerful tool children are very susceptible to suggestion and when you tell them something repeatedly year after year over and over again it becomes something that uh, is part of their of their psyche and they can never get over that so the chinese i would say are way more patriotic than indians are way more patriotic today i would say that how many indians are patriotic today look at that fellow veer das and lots of people have asked me about him veer das he goes abroad and maligns india makes fun of india and there are so many people who don't have any love for the country people try, tend to put their local interest above the national interest my language is more important my state is more important than the country there is so much sentiment like this right and there is so much sentiment about my religion so is more important than the country among certain sections of society i, I, I mean you know it it is there it is a it is a problem in india i think india is a very fragmented nation india doesn't have a sense of unity india doesn't have a sense of indian identity if you ask people what you what their identity is they will say my identity is so and so state my language or whatever the hell there is the indian identity always comes second so the, we are not taught to be patriotic as children we don't know what patriotism is we think patriotism is a bad thing many people say patriotism is 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 bad nationalism is bad and they try to create semantic differences between patriotism and nationalism as if they even understand the same semantics and linguistics but yeah, that's the thing so i think there is a great lack of patriotism in india i mean i think that most of the people who watch this channel are patriotic i know that but overall in the overall population there is a significant uh, lack of this sentiment in the chinese they are all programmed programmed by the education system by the media by the communist party um, state machinery etc to be extremely patriotic and there is a contract a social contract in china as long as the chinese communist party is able to deliver high standards of living and uh, and victories for china uh, globally economic victories diplomatic victories maybe in the future military victories as long as that keeps going as long as, as the chinese communist party keeps succeeding people are going to support it and they are going to stay patriotic so i think the citizens of china are way more patriotic than indians because they have been programmed to do so uh chinese soldiers are drafted against their own will into the military yeah that happens yes so but that is a minimal thing i mean the the, the chinese military is about how what, what is the strength 2 million 3 million something like that approximately give or take so that is the strength of the chinese military the population is 1.4 billion so that sentiment may be there in a small fraction maybe 50% of the soldiers or maybe 25% of the soldiers it is not a nationwide malaise right so i think that there is a a sentiment of devotion and obedience to the to towards the chinese communist party in the common chinese people the chances of a coup at this stage are are minimal the coup can never happen from the civilian side it can happen 
either as a political coup within the Chinese Communist Party or as a military coup against the Chinese Communist Party. There can be no civilian coup in China. The Chinese, as of today, uh, the, the chances of a coup right now are minimal because the Chinese Communist Party so far is doing well. Now the economy is slowing down, etc. If that happens, there could be internal problems in the Chinese Communist Party. People may try and overthrow Mr. Xi Jinping and that sort of coup may be engineered. So that may happen if the economic slowdown continues. So that is a possibility uh, sometime in the future. Shauriyat uh, Desai says, should India change its capital because Delhi has become overpopulated, extremely polluted? Also, it's just a few hundred kilometers away from the, both the Pakistani and Chinese borders. Should we build a new city from scratch or change the capital to one of the existing cities? I think that's a very good question and a, and a good suggestion. I think uh, there's no need for us to keep on using Delhi as the capital city. Uh, the capital city of a country should be built only for administrative and uh, administrative purposes, for governance purposes. It should ideally not be in an in a, in a highly populated uh, city or zone. It should be a purpose-built city somewhere in the heart of India. And the only purpose should be to uh, to house this, the, the Parliament of India and the administrative and governance machinery of the central government. So, and and uh, Delhi, like you say, it's extremely overpopulated. It's, it's a very polluted city. And it is close to the, the Chinese, the, the Tibetan border and the Pakistani border. So it's a problem. I think Delhi needs to be abandoned as the capital and we need to build a new capital city somewhere in the center of India, in the in the central central region of India, that is a very good idea. I think that should happen, but I don't know if there is political will for that. And Delhi has never been a city which has given India good luck. I mean, people people even say that Delhi is a cursed city from the time of Indraprast. The Indraprast was Delhi, wasn't it? Delhi is built on this side on the, on the location of ancient Indraprast from the Mahabharat times, and from there, those days itself, it has been a city with bad luck. It's been a cursed city. Whoever has ruled there has. <laughs> whichever Indians have ruled there have had bad luck. I mean, I don't know if you believe in bad luck or not. It's a, Luck is a different story, but you know, it doesn't have a good history. So maybe India should find itself a new capital city, build itself a new capital city. Uh, historically, we have had multiple capital cities. Uh, during uh, the Kushan times, during Kanishka the Great's time, we had two capital cities. One was Mathura and one was Purushpur, which is present day Peshawar. So maybe in the future we can use Peshawar as a capital city, you know, in the future, maybe five, ten years on the line, or maybe maybe longer. But as of now, it would be good to have a capital city in somewhere in, in the central region of India, equal distances from all the borders of India, that sort of thing. Yeah, that, that would be good. I think it's a good suggestion. It's a good idea. We should do that. Dungar Singh Chauhan says, what are your views on the metaverse? It's an interesting question. So what is the metaverse? The metaverse is, is, is something that's almost here already. It is the confluence, the convergence of three, four different domains. One is the physical realm that we inhabit. The second one is augmented reality. The third one is, uh, is virtual reality. And then, the, then you have things like social media and cryptocurrency and all that. So eventually all of these domains are going to merge together into what people are now calling the metaverse. So what may happen is that you may be able to, sitting in your room, go and talk to somebody in another 
continent as if you are in the same room you can hang out with your friends you may be in india somebody else may be in europe third person may be in africa fourth may be in north america fifth may be in south america sixth may be in japan and you can all hang out together in one virtual room as holograms as if you are all together in the same room that may happen soon enough maybe in the next 5 to 10 years that is the metaverse and you may have augmented reality like your certain uh, things that you wear on your eyes goggles glasses that give you extra information than what you already getting and you may have uh, elements of virtual reality in that and then you may have an entire cryptocurrency and uh, virtual payments domain in that so you may actually inhabit a universe that is way more augmented and different than the physical universe you live in the physical universe may live may look rather threadbare once you enter the metaverse so that that is the metaverse what are my views it's going to happen we are almost there uh, our lives are increasingly uh, online i mean is there a single day that you spend without being online or without interacting with the internet and doing transactions of some sort of of the other it's impossible nowadays right and it's only going to increase in the future so that is the metaverse it's going to happen whether people like it or not and uh, it's going to make some people very rich so the early adopters i mean right now facebook has rebranded itself as meta right so so their plan is to take the take the lead in creating the metaverse and being at the heart of the metaverse and other big companies from the us mainly are also doing this so it remains to be seen what uh, what role india plays in this i will india be a passive consumer or will india be to some extent a creator of this so that's what it is right so that is what the metaverse is Okay, Syed Mir Taki Ali says hello from Pakistan. Hello, hello, nice to meet you. What have you? What are your views on the theory of Helmand or Harut River in Afghanistan being the Rig Vedic, Nadi Nadi Tama Saraswati, and uh, General G D Bakshi in many TV shows has said the length of the Saraswati River was four thousand six hundred kilometers in the Rig Vedic period. But if we now see the maximum length from Mount Kailash to Kutch is about two to two and a half thousand kilometers. That's a very good question. Uh, okay, so yeah, there have been many theories about the Helmand or some other river in Afghanistan being the Rig Vedic Saraswati. There is even a Harahwati River in somewhere in Iran that people have proposed could be the Saraswati, right? So the Helmand initial Helmand originally was called the Setumant River. the original name was setumant then later it became hetumant because the parsis the persians they pronounce sa as ha so setumant became hetumant it eventually became helmand setumant means uh, setubandh river means a river with a dam on it so that was the original ancient vedic sanskrit name of this river so apparently our ancestors many thousand years ago had built a dam on this river so this river the setu the helmand is about 1000 1500 kilometers long give or take it's not a very long river and it is a river that dies in afghanistan itself it it uh, drains into a lake in afghanistan let me share my map let me uh, let, let's go to the map it's always a good idea to share a map and take a look let me see where is our map 
here we have a map so let's go to afghanistan north of india gandhar and where is the helmand river so this large big big river here is most likely the helmand let's see what it's called helmand this is the helmand river as you can see it's a fairly long large river it goes from northern afghanistan all the way to this region here there is this big lake here that it drains into and that is the end of the helmand river so this is where the helmand river uh, ends more or less somewhere in this region right okay so the helmand river ends somewhere here it never reaches the sea and there is no dry river bed of this river that that indicates that in the past at some time at some point in time in the past it may have actually drained into the sea that is not the case so this river does not ever drain into the sea and it did not do that in the past also and it is also not a very long river it's about a thousand to thousand five hundred kilometers long and it is known that the saraswati is a river a great it was a great massive humongous super large river that drained into the ocean so that's why the helmand will not fit the bill and neither will any other river in afghanistan because none of these rivers they actually drain into the sea and we also we know that there is only one massive dry river bed in the entire saptasindhu region from gandhar to up only one massive dry river bed which stretches from the himalayas and goes all the way into the uh, into the indian ocean in kutch so that is a massive gigantic dry river bed it is several kilometers wide in some places so that is the only river that could possibly fit the bill of the of of the, the that could possibly match the description that is given in the rigveda of the saraswati it was called the mother of floods a loudly roaring river it was a mega mega river it was bigger than any other river in this region bigger than the, than the sindhu river so that is why i would not take the claim of the helmand being the saraswati seriously because it simply doesn't uh, agree with the data that we have right or the harut river the harut river is an is an even smaller smaller river it's a minor river compared to the helmand so these two rivers do not fit the bill you know that's the thing now as to what general uh, gd bakshi sir has said in tv show so i am not aware of what he says what he has said uh, if he has claimed that it was so and so kilometers in length i am not aware of it i am not privy to such uh, i have not heard any such claim uh, maybe he did maybe he did not i am not sure so since i have not heard it myself i will not comment about that now what is the length that is mentioned in the rigveda so the rigveda i'm not sure how it has been described the length of the river but the units that were used in the vedic times were most likely yojanas right i think it was yojanas and we are not quite sure of the conversion from the rigvedic or ancient vedic units to kilometers because we have lost the data we've lost the information that would enable us to accurately convert from that unit to the modern kilometer unit and therefore it is I, i would i would be very careful to pass any judgment as to what length is given in the rigveda or any ancient vedic text of this river right so that's why i i am not sure what is the exact length that was mentioned if 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 an if an uh, if a proper in, entire length is given or not even in the rigveda but from all the information that we have the geological information the satellite data 
and the on the the ground information the information we have on the ground level of this enormous riverbed enormous riverbed that we have in front of us uh, which stretches all the way from the himalayas to the to the to the indian ocean so there's only one such dry riverbed that we have available to us so from all this information that we have all the data that we have it we can only uh, we can only conclude that that has to be the location of the saraswati and we know that this dry riverbed i mean they have uh, conducted tests and all that on this river it is uh, estimated that this river dried out approximately around 1900 to 1500 bce which is about 3 and a half to 4000 years before today so that kind of matches uh the what uh, timelines one would expect right so from all this information one can only conclude that that only can be the saraswati and not the helmand or the iranian harahavati which seems to be a name given by the uh vedic people who migrated to iran and they named another river in the in memory of the great river that they had left behind it looks like that is the case so there is a iranian harahavati river a small one which seems to be named after the great and original saraswati river so that's what i have to say based on all the information that we have the best candidate for the vedic saraswati is the great dry river bed that stretches from the himalayas all the way into the to the indian ocean in kutch that is 99.9% the correct river the correct candidate for the saraswati okay avinash kale says <laughs> why are there no purple or green stars this is a very good question has your teacher <laughs> ever made you think about this why are there no purple or green stars it's a very good question so uh let me let me answer this question it's a very good question i like it and let me answer it so here is okay let's take a look at this so let me ask you a different question first of all to answer this question why are there no purple or green stars see when you take a piece of metal let's say a piece of iron and you heat that piece of iron what is the transformation that you see you first see as you start heating the piece of iron that the that the piece of iron the iron rod uh, starts glowing the initial color is a dull red color then as you heat it further as the temperature rises it becomes a bright red color then it becomes orange and yellow then it becomes bluish white and that is the final color before it melts you would never see a piece of iron glow green or purple even though it emits those wavelengths of light if you can see here so if you can see my mouse pointer this is the black body spectrum which is the rainbow which is the rainbow right and the the, the uh, metal that you heat it actually emits light in all of these wavelengths it emits initially red light then orange light then yellow light then it emits green light then blue and purple lights as well and yet you never see it that way why is that it's not because it doesn't emit that light of that color it's because we see the human eye sees the light differently so even with stars there are stars that emit light in all these colors 
for example our star the sun it's it like its light peaks in the in the green uh, in the green part of the spectrum and yet we don't see it as green we don't see any green light coming from the sun it's because of the biological uh, construction of our eyes our eyes uh, have two kinds of, of photoreceptor cells rods and cones one of these cells it 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 detects the kind of the amount of light that comes in the luminosity and the other kind of cell detects colors so human eyes the i'm not sure exactly what the biology is but we are unable to see the the green light that is detected because it is kind of drowned out in all the other uh, colors of the spectrum that are emitted so when it becomes greenish we kind of see it as white and similarly we don't see indigo or or purple we see that uh, we, it all blends together and looks like white light so if you see the light of the sun it is white light the sun looks yellowish to us but the light that comes comes out of the sun is white light it is a combination of all the colors of the spectrum put together and our our eyes do detect red they do detect orange and yellow and they do detect uh, blue to some extent but they somehow interpret green and the purple and uh, region of the spectrum as something that's mixed together with, with all the other colors and that's why it all looks white to us so it's a biological thing it's a biological thing it's not a physical thing so th- there are stars that emit light of all colors there may be stars that emit more green light too or purple light too and yet we don't see it that way we see them most likely as white stars so when you look in the sky you will see stars twinkling in various colors many of them look blue some of them look white some of them look yellowish oranges some of them look red but we never observe stars that look green or purple so that's the reason it's a biological thing our eyes are designed in a certain manner that they do not perceive that sort of light coming from stars they see it only as white but the light does the green light does come out of stars the same way that green light is emitted by heated metals but we don't see it our eyes don't perceive it it's a perception issue not an emission issue all right so i hope that answers the question stars emit light in all colors but we don't see it that way okay akash says why doesn't india de recognize tibet as part of china when arunachal pradesh is not considered a part of india by the chinese who recognized it in the first place and why was it nehru let me answer the second part of the question first who recognized tibet as part of china it wasn't shri nehru who did that it was shri atal bihari vajpayee who officially recognized tibet as part of china in exchange for china recognizing sikkim as part of india sikkim tibet so in exchange for china recognizing this tiny sikkim as part of india mr vajpayee decided to recognize officially the whole of tibet as part of china incredible so this was another gandhian move actually so that that is the the story of india people our our leaders giving i mean making such uh, unequal arrangements and treaties so the question then is why doesn't india de recognize tibet as part of china when the chinese don't recognize arunachal pradesh as part of india they say it is their territory and they don't uh, believe in the one india policy but they want us to uh, follow a one china policy so here's the thing 
let's say tomorrow india derecognizes tibet as part of china india says tibet tibet is a disputed territory what is going to be the chinese reaction it's not going to be anger they are going to take certain steps see today china is the world's manufacturing powerhouse it manufactures all kinds of uh spare parts ingredients things that you need in your supply chains and all that right and there are lots of things that india needs from china lots of goods materials uh spare parts things like that our industries need spare parts that are manufactured in china we need semiconductors we need other things that are manufactured in china the chinese will stop all the supplies it's essentially economic sanctions and trade sanctions so when we stop receiving these things from for things from china our economy will suffer a significant setback so china is currently today in a position to impose a great amount of pain and cost economic cost on india by simply shutting off the tap and refusing to give to send india all any of these supplies and that is the leverage they have over india so the so the chinese started uh developing their manufacturing sector back in the 1970s the late 1970s early 1980s and they have slowly steadily invested in that and made it more and more uh and 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 uh, seen a great amount of progress so initially they were they were uh, manufacturing just very basic things but as the expertise grew they started manufacturing more and more complicated instruments and and things and today the entire global supply chain is fed by chinese manufacturing right and they are able to manufacture anything in the world so they can shut that down for india or any other country that does not uh, recognize tibet or taiwan etc as part of china that they can impose genuine costs on on such a country especially india so that is the reason there are real reasons why india is not uh, taking such an action and india had the opportunity to do this before china but india never did that even today india is not really well it has not progressed much in the field of in the manufacturing and in other sectors right so india will have to build its economy grow its economy to at least 10 trillion dollars in gdp before india can think of challenging china in in such a manner so there are real genuine economic and geopolitical reasons why india is currently not taking such an action Aditya says what is meant by electromagnetism so there are four fundamental interactions in nature four fundamental forces you can say the strong nuclear force that holds atomic nuclei together the weak nuclear force that is responsible for radioactivity etc hmm? then you have the electromagnetic force and then you have the force of gravitation these are four the four fundamental interactions Gra- electromagnetism is one of these so what does electromagnetism do electromagnetism is what makes like charges repel and unlike charges attract it is what it is the uh, so electricity and magnetism are two different manifestations of the same force they are part and parcel of the same force and the mediator particle the boson that is involved in electromagnetism is the photon so light is an electromagnetic phenomenon 
and the and electromagnetism is the force that holds atoms together so in an atom let's say you take a hydrogen atom which has one proton in as the nucleus and one electron which goes around it so the proton is positively charged the nucleus is positively charged and the electron is negatively charged so it is the electromagnetic force that holds the atom together whether it is the hydrogen atom the helium atom or oxygen calcium iron uranium etc go on you can go on and on so all atoms in every atom the electrons and the nucleus are are they, they stay together because of the force of electromagnetism and then you have a uh, all the chemical uh, chemical uh, the ke- chemistry when you talk about chemistry uh, when atoms come together to form molecules that is also because of electromagnetism and intramolecular forces forces are also because of electromagnetism the the whole of chemistry is based on electromagnetism so the world we live in it is mainly an electromagnetic world our sense our senses are based on electromagnetism the light that we see is an electromagnetic phenomenon so all of these things are uh manifestations of electromagnetism okay chiching says oh, who were the ancestors of the people of present day nagaland what is their origin and were they part of ancient india this is a very good question and this is a question that we don't have an answer to as of today historians don't know what is the origin of the people of nagaland so let's talk about the people of nagaland where is nagaland do you do you guys know where it is most people don't know where, <laughs> where nagaland is let me once again go to the map where is the map okay we were in northwestern india let's go to northeastern india or the far far east of india so this here region this here if you can see the my mouse pointer is nagaland it is a state in the far east of india to the south you have manipur to the north you have assam to the east you have meghalaya to the west you have myanmar or burma so this is the state of nagaland who are the naga people the naga people are a number of 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 tribes okay so there are a number of tribes in nagaland you have the konyak tribe the ao tribe the lotha tribe rongmai tangkhul mao sumi etc a number of tribes so historically these tribes were all living in this region and many of these tribes were living in isolation this is a very hilly region okay by the way it's a very hilly region it's very easy, easy to stay isolated if you are a small tribal community so many of these tribes may have been isolated for a very long time uh they many of them speak very different languages they can't understand each other's languages and they all practiced uh, so now they are all christians but um, 100 years ago even 60 70 years ago many the majority of them practiced their ancient uh indigenous culture mainly animism nature worship ancestor worship that sort of thing and many of them could not uh understand each other's language so you had tribes that were living in isolation many of their tribes are very big uh and many of them uh, many of these tribal groups are currently found in present day manipur some of them are found in arunachal pradesh many of them are found in parts of myanmar as well so these this is a a large number of different tribes so when the british came to india they categorized all these people as naga 
as Nagas. So it is an exonym. It's a name that's been given by outside forces. Now the the so what is the origin is the question, right? So we know that the, that when the Ahoms came into when the Ahoms migrated to Assam into Assam in the 13th century, these uh, Naga tribes, what are now called Naga, Naga tribes, they were already present in in this region. They were already there. When it comes to uh, the Manipur, see the the major kings that ruled this region were the Manipuri kings, the Meite kings, the Ningthoja dynasty, which goes back at least two thousand years, most likely three and a half thousand years. Now, in Manipur, there is this saying that the people of the hills and the people of the valley are brothers. The people of the valley are the Meites of Manipur, and the people of the hills are the various tribes, the so-called Naga tribes. So if the Manipuris, if the Maitis are three and a half thousand years old, if that, that's their history, then it is possible that even the Nagas may have been living in this region for three and a half thousand years. We simply don't know. Our historians have not done their duty. They have simply neglected the Northeast. In the case of Manipur, they have their own records of kings. They have their own historical records. And that's why we know the history of Manipur. When it comes to the Nagas, nothing, there is no history. I don't know if history was written or not, but we don't have it today. But I would think that it is quite likely that the people of Nagaland, the various Naga tribes, may have lived in, in this region for two, three thousand years or even longer. We don't know. Some people say, some some historic, uh, some historians say that Nagas came from China or Nagas came from uh, from uh, Mongolia, etc. I mean, where is the evidence? People these days make claims without evidence. I think it is quite likely, quite possible that they may have been living in this part of India, in this part of the world for a very long time. It is quite possible. It's quite likely. What needs to be done is that the historians need to take some interest in this region and find out what is the origin. One of the ways to do this is to do genetic analysis, genetic tests of the of the populations. If you do genetic sequencing of these uh, genomes of uh, the, the people of this region, Manipuris, Nagas, uh, people of Arunachal Pradesh, etc., we'll be able to find out what are the migration patterns and when these migrations happened, how many centuries ago, how many thousands of years ago. As of today, it's not been done. And secondly, I'm sure that the various Naga communities, various Naga tribal groups, etc., they have their own mythological histories, their own foundational histories and all stories and all that. If you go and talk to the village elders and all, they will have their own histories of their community. So why has this not been documented? What are the so-called professors in the University of Nagaland in the history department doing? They are not doing anything. I don't know what they do. So it is unfortunate that we don't know as of today the origin and the history of the people of Nagaland. They are a very diverse people, very interesting uh, culture, very beautiful culture, their ancestral culture. Yeah. So it would be, I, I would be fascinated to know, I would be very interested to know what is the, the deep history of the people of Nagaland, what is the deep uh, migration history, if there is any, or have they always been, been living here for many thousands of years? We don't know. But this is the kind of research that needs to happen. India is a gold mine when it comes to historical research, when it comes to sociological research, when it comes to genetic research, and so many other things. Unfortunately, our intellectuals, our historians, our academicians, our eminent people, they simply don't care. Sad, isn't it?
Okay, Karthik says, what is your opinion on school college dropout culture in India? Can we get jobs only based on skills without having a college degree? Today, it's not possible because our industrialists and people who run all these companies, private sector, etc., and the government sector, actually, uh, etc., they are enamored with degrees. If you don't have a certain degree, they will not even think about giving you a job. Now, contrast that, compare that with somebody like Elon Musk. Elon Musk has a number of companies. SpaceX and Tesla are two of the major companies. He has made it very clear that he is open to um, accepting anybody in Tesla as an employee, provided they have the right skills. And degrees are not important. Even if you don't have a college degree, he said, even if you don't have a high school degree, he will take you as long as you can pass the coding test and you can pass the interviews. It's not about degrees anymore. It's about your skills. So in places like Tesla, places like the US, when you have a visionary uh, founder like Elon Musk, then it's possible to get a job without a college degree or even a high school degree, as long as you have the skills, as long as you have demonstrable skills. Right? As of today, Indian mindset is very different. Our the people who run Indian private companies, most of them are old men and their mindset is still mired in the 1960s and 1970s, unfortunately. If I were running a, con a, a company, I would say, I don't care about a degree, show me your skills. If you have the skills, if you can demonstrate your skills, I would be happy to give you a job. But I don't run a, a company as of today, right? And oh, so today being, uh, so today I would say that dropping out is not a very good idea. In the US, if you look at people like Bill Gates, if you look at uh, the founder of Oracle, if you look at Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, if you look at Elon Musk, Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX, Tesla, uh, he was involved in PayPal, Solar City, the Boring Company, and so on and so forth. These people are dropouts. Bill Gates was a dropout. Steve Jobs dropped out of college because he found it a waste of time. Elon Musk was accepted for a PhD in Stanford in physics. He could have had a PhD in physics and written, uh, you know, published papers, but he dropped out after two or three days because he he realized it's not the right place for him. If you are doing a PhD, you have to please your professors and the academic staff and whoever is there. They all hold your life at their mercy. So this is not the kind of uh, the the kind of environment that that a. a a performer likes, you know, having, I mean, other people controlling your your future and your destiny. So I think that dropout culture is still not a thing in India. Now, here is the thing. In the next five to 10 years maximum, this is my prediction. In the next five to 10 years, hear me out. Automation and AI is going to get rid of all the useless jobs in the world including in India, right? It's going to get rid of all the, of all the low level jobs. People like a ticket, a ticket checker, or if you stand in, uh, or, or somebody who, who's a ticket dispenser, 
in a, in, a, in a station in a railway station etc everything is going to become automated by soft with software everything is going to go online all these jobs are simply going to be eliminated today the indian bureaucracy etc in all that is like a employment generation scheme scheme very soon in the next 5 to 10 years all these jobs are going to disappear and the only the only thing of value is going to be proficiency in high technology you are going to be valuable in the job mar- job market only if you are extremely super comfortable with high technology if you are able to learn and adapt quickly and there is not degree for that so i am telling you in the next 5 to 10 years degrees are going to be worthless even in india and those industries those companies that insist on degrees they're going to be left behind they're going to be left far behind and newer more agile startups and companies are going to come up which will not care about your degree which will only look at your portfolio and what you can demonstrate about your skills and about how fast you can learn how fast you can adapt so in the next 5 to 10 years it's going to be hap- it's going to happen and people won't care if you have dropped out of college or school or school even because today uh, there are kids, uh, there are kids who are into coding into gaming and all that i mean you may think that gaming is a waste of time but it it gives you certain skills that are very useful and valuable especially if you combine that with with coding and programming and all those abilities so in the future very soon your proficiency and your skills when it comes to high technology are going to be the most valuable thing and that's when dropout culture will become the norm because degrees are even today i think it's a complete waste of time the education system is unfortunately at waste of 15 20 years of people's lives it gives you no real skills it turns you into brainwashed mentally damaged sheep right it it uh, rids it it uh, it prevents you it it kind of uh, takes away your ability to reason critical reasoning critical thinking asking questions creativity all those things so it's going to change very soon so it's it's not a thing yet but it's going to be a very big thing in the next 5 to 10 years okay my friend soham choudhury says what is the history of hinduism in armenia in the internet there is a wikipedia fa- page for hinduism in armenia so if hinduism exists existed in ancient armenia then why is there no evidence of buddhism in armenia even though armenia is geographically closer to central asia which is a buddhist majority region <clears throat> okay if there is okay central asia is not a buddhist majority region okay let's go to the map let's go back to the map this is the map very central asia uzbekistan kazakhstan tajikistan uzbekistan kyrgyzstan turkmenistan azerbaijan all this is central asia all right this is a muslim majority region it is not a buddhist majority region in the past it was a hindu buddhist region before the the, the turkification etc of this region yes i agree uh 2 3000 years ago you had the skythians who lived across this region it was called skythia the skythians the skythians were in indian origin people historians call them iranian people but they were in indian origin people and so on and so forth but today it is a muslim majority region in the past it was a hindu buddhist region hinduism buddhism same thing it's not a different thing i will tell you 100 times so in the past this was a hindu buddhist region you had 
Indian origin people living or in this entire region, people who migrated out of India. And these migrations are very well documented in Indian literature. The lingua franca of this region was the Gandhari language about 1500 or 2000 years ago, or maybe even a thousand years ago, right? And this entire region, all the way up to present day Western China, the Xinjiang region, all of this was a region where you had a very significant Indian influence. And you will still find ruined stupas and temples in this region. So yes, there was Hinduism and Buddhism, which is the same thing in this region. And the same goes for Armenia. Where is Armenia? Let's find Armenia. Armenia is a small country right here. It is northwest of, of, of Iran. So this is Iran here and you have Armenia there. It is east of Turkey. It is east of Anatolia and is essentially in the Caucasus region, which is kind of the dividing line, the imaginary dividing region between Asia and Europe. Now the Armenians are a very ancient people and there was a significant presence of Hinduism in Armenia. There were many Hindu temples here. You will not find references to that on Wikipedia, I suppose. I've not seen it. But uh, there were many Hindu temples here. There were many uh, dynasties that were originally Indian in nature. And many there, there were temples uh, of Lord Ganesh, of Shiva, etc. These temples were destroyed and, and Christian monasteries were built on top of those. And later, recently, even some of those Christian monasteries were destroyed. So there is a very old, there was a long time ago, about 2000 years ago, significant presence of Hinduism in Armenia. If you look at the people of Armenia, they don't look like Europeans. Uh, they would not be categorized as, as so-called white people, right? European people. They, they Their appearance is different. Their skin is somewhat darker than European, the skin of European people, they would look like the, the typical person in, let's say, northern India or, so, or something like that, the skin color. And they don't, they don't typically have blonde hair. They have dark hair and brown eyes. So their facial features and physical characteristics are more Eastern than Western. And by Eastern, I mean, they look more like Indian. If you see an, a person from Armenia, you would get the feeling there is something going on here. There is some kind of connection with India. But this is not all very well documented. Historians, of course, don't want to document the Hindu history of, of, of a foreign country. So we don't know much about it. I mean, by that, I mean, it's not very well documented. But there was a significant presence of Indian culture, of Indian genetics, of Hinduism, Buddhism in Central Asia and in Armenia. Gargi says, you always keep on saying that Indians have great minds, but how come we have the worst education system in India and we still manage to get to have great minds out of the system? Yes, I will keep saying this, that Indians are the most intelligent people in the world and history bears this out. Ours is the oldest and greatest civilization. Today, we are not the greatest civilization. We are not even a civilization anymore, but we still retain the same genetics. We are the descendants of the same great people. Why do we have the worst education system in this country, in India? Because we were colonized. Because in the past 1000 years, what happened was that our indigenous education system was destroyed first by the Turks and what was left of it was destroyed by the British. And then they imposed their foreign Macaulayan education system on India, which is designed to mass produce clerks and peons, not leaders. 
not intellectuals, not scientists, not artists. It is designed to mass produce clerks and peons. And that is the mindset that uh, all students have today. Obedience. So today, so, so that is the reason why we have the worst education system in the world in India. The the See, what this education system tells you is don't think, believe, don't understand, memorize, don't question, obey. Believing blindly, blindly memorizing and blindly obeying is going to turn people into sheep. Even if you are the most intelligent person in the world, it's all, it's all about the wrong beliefs, the wrong attitudes, and the wrong values that are being brain that are be, that are being drilled into the minds of Indian children. Right. So that is the that was the purpose of the education system to to destroy the country, to destroy the civilization, to turn India into a nation of clerks and peons and followers and sheep, not a nation of leaders. Right. And of course, we still manage to extract some great minds out of the system. It's just luck. We have greatness in our genes. We have greatness in our blood, in our minds. Most of us are, are beaten down by the system and broken by the system, by the education system. But some of us, we, we come out of it and we climb, oh, we climb above, above it. So somehow we still manage to have great minds that come out of the system, especially when you have a population of 1.3 billion you will statistically have a few great minds coming out of the country. But if we change the system, we will have millions of leaders coming out of the country who will lead, in the, lead the world in a variety of fields, in technology, in science, in the arts, in politics, in other, in other things, in space travel, in many other things, right? In culture. So we need to have a society that produces leaders in a variety of different fields and domains. Today we don't have it because of the education system. If we change it, if we get rid of the system and bring in a good education system, then the whole country will be transformed. Neeraj Bansal says, how do I as an Indian work for the maximum development of India? Good question. I'm assuming you're a youngster. I would say this. To work for the maximum development of India, you should spend the first 20 years of your adult life working for the maximum development of you. The first 20 years focus on yourself. It is not selfishness. It is personal development. So the first 20 years of your adult life work on your personal development, maximum development. Once you reach the age of 40, give or take, then contribute to the country because then you will have reached a position in which you have a great number of skills, you have a great amount of experience and you may have reached a, a, a position where you can financially make things happen. Right? That's when you can work for the maximum development of India because by then you will understand how the world works. You will understand what are the, what are the problems, you will know what are the possible potential solutions. So that is what you do. It's a long-term game. It's not something you can start at the age of 20. It's very hard to do that. Because at the age of 20, you are clueless. I was clueless at the age of 20. It doesn't work like that. So it takes time, 10, 20 years, to gain experience, to gain the skills, to become financially self-sufficient, to become financially su successful and powerful. And that is when you're in a position to contribute to the development of India. That's what India needs.
Anjali says, what if somebody doesn't want to leave Bharat? In that scenario, how do we beat the ills of our system and work up the ladder in our respective profession, like budding researchers, etc.? Well, Anjali, I would suggest that the only scenario in which you should not leave India as a youngster is if you have a lot of money. If you have a lot of money, you can build your own startup if you have good ideas, or you can invest in a startup which has good ideas. Right? If you have money, you can make things happen. But if you are starting at the bottom of the ladder, corporate ladder, or the academic ladder, then the system is going to prevent you from flowering. Let's say you are a budding researcher. You want to, let's say, do research in physics. Have you heard of any significant research breakthrough coming out of India in the field of physics in the past 20 years? Past 30 years? Past 50 years? Nothing, right? Why is it so? Because the system rewards mediocrity and destroys talent. The system doesn't want good people. The system is a system of mediocrity. The higher you rise in the system, the more mediocre you are. The talent they require is talent in politics. So, the people who rise to higher positions in academia rise because they are good at playing politics, not because they are good in research. Heads of department, etc. are, are administrators, they are not scientists. But they are the ones who are called eminent scientists. <laughs> so I would give you this honest uh, recommendation that, that if you don't wish to leave Bharat, then you should be somebody who is rich, who has a few crore rupees to throw around, either to start a new startup or to invest in a good startup. Otherwise, I would recommend that you should leave India for the first 20 years of your adult life. Establish yourself in whatever field uh, you are interested in, acquire a certain stature, and then you can come back to India and contribute to the country. That's what I would recommend. Because today India doesn't want talented people. <laughs> and it is not the fault of the people of India. It is the system that is built like this. And unfortunately, people conflate the system with the people. Because the system is so rotten, the Indian people must be so rotten. It's not the case. The system is the colonial system that has been imposed upon us by force. So anyway, that's what I would say, Anjali. Good luck. Okay, two questions, very similar. Why do Indonesians have Sanskrit names when the Cholas were based in the south of India? And Sondara Prakash says, with due respect and curiosity, I'd like to ask you, on what basis do you say that the Cholas spread Sanskrit in their kingdom in Southeast Asia? Very good questions, right? Good questions. Let's take the first question first. Yes, Indonesians have Sanskrit names. And the Cholas ruled Indonesia. But the Cholas were based in the south of India. They were a southern Indian dynasty. They were a Tamil dynasty. So why do Indonesians have Sanskrit names? Very strange, isn't it? My question is this. Why do Tamil people have Sanskrit names? There is this uh, very famous individual, Periyar. Periyar is not his name. What is his real name? His real name was Ramaswamy. Is that a Tamil name or a Sanskrit name? Think of any major Tamil uh, 
politician, actor, or whatever, who's, whoever is your favorite person, the chances are that they have Sanskrit names. The majority of the names of the Tamil people are Sanskrit names. Think about the old Tamil movies you used to watch on Doordarshan or whatever. What kind of lifestyle did the Tamil people have? They were devout Hindus. They were more traditional and more devout Hindus than the people of North India. Then what happened in the past 20-30 years? That's all politics. And unfortunately, today's Tamil people, youngsters especially, they think that the, the, the Tamil civilization is separate from Indian civilization. Theirs was a secular civilization. Hinduism is foreign to Tamil Nadu and so on and so forth. Utter nonsense. So the Indonesians have Sanskrit names because the Cholas spread their culture and civilization across Southeast Asia. And that culture, that civilization was Hinduism and Sanskrit. Okay, that's why it happened. Because the Cholas themselves had Sanskrit names. Raj Raj Chola. Raj Raj. What is Raj? It is Rajya. Sanskrit. Rajendra Chola. What is Rajendra? Again, Sanskrit. Come on, wake up. What about Mr. Sondara Prakash? Or, yeah. Uh, on what basis do I say that the Cholas spread Sanskrit in the kingdom, in their kingdoms in Southeast Asia, in their empire in Southeast Asia? See, we know there was Sanskrit throughout Southeast Asia. That is an undeniable fact. We know there was Hinduism across Southeast Asia up to the Philippines, throughout Southeast Asia. Again, an undeniable fact. We also know that it was the Cholas who conquered the whole of Southeast Asia. That is also an undeniable fact. There was no other Indian empire that conquered Southeast Asia. 2 plus 2 equal to 4. The Cholas conquered Southeast Asia and there is Sanskrit and Hinduism across Southeast Asia. So who else would have spread it? Who else would have spread it? That is the basis on which I make this claim. It is called logic. Okay, Arhan says, how and why did India lose the 1962 war against China? Well, how did we lose this war? So it all began in the 1950s. In the 1950s, what happened was that the Chinese, they conquered, they, they invaded Tibet, right? Tibet was until then a sovereign and independent nation, a Buddhist nation, a Dharmic nation. The Chinese under Mao Tse Tung invaded Tibet. And they would not have succeeded in the invasion because Tibet is an enormous territory. It's a, it's a huge territory. Let me show you. See, this entire region here, if you can see my mouse pointer, this entire region here essentially is Tibet. It's a very large territory. So the Chinese in the 1950s, I think in 55, was it? Yeah. They invaded Tibet and they started starving. They were so far away from actual China. And the supplies were, were disrupted, etc. And they were starving. The Chinese soldiers were starving. The Pe People's Liberation Army soldiers were starving. And their invasion of Tibet was going to fail. And what happened is that our magnanimous and magnificent Prime Minister, Sri Jawaharlal Nehruji, supplied them with rice. 
so that they could complete their invasion of Tibet. So the Tibet invasion succeeded because our Prime Minister Sri Nehruji supplied the People's Liberation Army soldiers with rice, lots and lots of rice from Assam, etc. That's point number one. So the Chinese then, for the first time in three to four thousand years of history, became actual neighbors of India. Until that time, there was no India uh, India China border. It was just the India Tibet border. But then the Chinese invaded and occupied Tibet. They annexed it and made it part of their country. And then the India Tibet border became the India China border. The India Tibet border was never properly defined because India was under the British Raj and the British Raj was an illegitimate foreign occupier of India. Now in the 1950s again what happened was that the Chinese started constructing a road in Aksai Chin which is the part of India. They started constructing a road after uh, annexing Tibet. And for years, Mr. Nehru was unaware about this. When he came to know about this, he said, doesn't matter. There is not even a blade of grass grows there. So let them have it. This huge piece of Indian territory, let them let the Chinese have it. So that's point number two. First, the Chinese should never been, have been in Tibet. Mr. Nehru brought them there. Secondly, he gave up on Aksai Chin without firing a single bullet. Thirdly, Mr. Nehru neglected the Indian army. The Indian army did not have proper supplies. They did not have proper ammunition. They did not even have proper winter clothing, alpine clothing, which you need to, the, the warm clothing that you need to wear when you fight in, in the Himalayas, where the temperatures can go down to minus 20, minus 30 degrees. Right? The Indian soldiers did not have proper equipment and proper clothing suitable for that sort of climate. And they did not have ammunition, etc. So the, the morale was down. And, and so on and so forth. These are many of the reasons why India eventually lost the 1962 war. And also, when the 1962 war happened, Mr. Nehru, for some reason, refused to allow the Indian Air Force to strike at the Chinese positions. He refused the, uh, to allow the Indian Air Force to participate in the war. So the Indian soldiers were fighting the Chinese without any air support. Why would he do such a thing? I I don't have any answers for that. So these are some of the reasons why India lost the 1962 war against China. It is all thanks to the great, the great Sri Nehruji. Ashna says, what's your viewpoint about Italy's one euro homes? (laughs) So in case you guys are not aware, Italy has been putting up certain houses for sale for the price of one euro. There are many websites on which you can actually find these properties. You can buy such such a property for one euro. You want to do that? Do it now. But here's the thing. These are not new properties. These are typically very old buildings. Buildings that are several centuries, two, three hundred years old in rural parts of Italy. Very beautiful locations and all that. Italy is a beautiful place, right? But typically these are very old properties in rural parts of Italy. See, Italy has been facing this population decline for a very long time, for many decades Many villages are like half abandoned today. 
and many of these uh, buildings ancient habitations have been abandoned many of them are just barely standing heaps of stones you could say so the, the deal is that you have to buy this 1 euro property for 1 euro only and then you have i think about 3 to 5 years something like that in which you have to renovate the property and the renovation is going to cost you money maybe 10000 euros if you're lucky maybe 50000 euros maybe 1 lakh euros it's going to cost you money and what you find is that the majority of these properties are being bought by foreigners not by italians because italians know that it may not quite be worth the hassle right so these properties are available for sale if you want to buy a property for 1 euro you can actually buy it if you know where to look but then there is a whole uh, there is a whole other thing a bunch of other things that comes with that you you have or i think 3 years or 5 years to renovate the property and there is the, all the paperwork to be done the bureaucracy in italy is quite bad there's a lot of red red tape and all that so in the long run if you, if it is something that you enjoy renovating an old property then you may be able to do it if you have the money for that otherwise it may not be worth your time but yeah it's there the the this scheme is still i think open uh the first it it was first started like maybe 10 20 years or maybe even before that ago and it is still available so yeah it, it is there but you may end up with a bad property that is beyond repair or you may end up having to spend a lot of money on it it's not something that you can just go and live in it's going to be something you will need to renovate but many of the locations are good with a nice view of the countryside or even the sea the climate is good in italy and so on so it's it may be worth some people's time akash says how soon will a time come when fighter pilots are replaced by heavy duty drones and artificial intelligence and what about the total replacement of human soldiers by robotic soldiers in the army and on ships in the navy very good question it's going to happen so in china let's say let's talk about china for instance in china they have these mig 19 planes in india we have the mig 21s the the mig 19 is i think the one of the world's first supersonic jet fighters it's a soviet design the chinese acquired some of these planes and then they created their own version of the of the mig 19 i think it's called the y16 i don't know what it's called y6 y16 something like that it's a chinese version of the, of the mig 19 plane so these planes are very old museum pieces but they have brought these back into service as flying drones as unmanned aerial vehicles so these are throwaway pieces that anyway belong in the museum if they crashed it doesn't really matter so they have converted them into flying drones unmanned aerial vehicles so they will be remote controlled and flown as fighter jets or maybe as kamikaze aircraft aircraft flying bombs or whatever so that is what the chinese are doing the americans have converted some old aircraft and even some f16s into unmanned vehicles heavy duty drones you could say it's happening soon enough you will have drones that are completely autonomous completely ar ai powered that is also going to happen uh that is going to happen and maybe it's already happening we don't know so it's it's already it's all of this is already in the works uh the chinese have a very very uh, extensive drone program they have been investing in in drone technology for at least 15 20 years and they have a whole lot of varieties of drones that they have they have created over, over the years and tested and they keep on improving 
because they have this uh, research based university program they have universities that are only research based many of them you know so they have an academic industrial military research complex which we lack in india because our academic academic system is the 19th century colonial system which doesn't care about the future of the country so the chinese are going ahead in this the americans are also doing the same but india thus far is not a major player when it comes to drones we do have the rustam or something uh, unmanned aerial vehicle which is a remote controlled aircraft which is showing a uh, good progress but we have a long way to go to catch up with uh, the cutting edge level technology so the time will be soon maybe in the next 5 10 maximum 15 20 years when fighter pilots are completely replaced with ai in uh, in fighter jets and the total replacement of human soldiers by robotic soldiers in the army and ships it may happen uh, i think we are still not quite close to that because uh, we still don't have the technology uh for bipedal robots i mean there are certain uh, companies in the us that have these videos of these dancing robots uh dancing humanoid robots dancing dog robots and so on and so forth so they are uh, doing significant progress in that but i am not sure if we are still at the, uh, close to the, to the to the point where these these robots could serve or could replace human soldiers maybe it could happen in the next 10 years perhaps so you could have these robotic dogs and robotic humanoids equipped with automatic weapons and other things it could happen in the next 10 years and also you may have the same sort of thing in the navy in naval forces so it's certainly going to happen at some point it could happen in the next 5 to 10 years roughly sushma says how is russia able to develop a world class military hardware despite its low and shrinking economy and why india lacks in this despite having a good economy while why do we lack research and development what's keeping us behind see russia the russia of today is the successor successor state of the ussr the ussr was a genuine economic and military superpower they had a massive economy and that translated that economic might translated into military might so they invested in r and d over the decades 1950 60s 70s 80s 90s and so on and so forth right so they invested a lot in r&d a lot of their economy a lot of the money was poured into r&d and that's why that's why present day russia has inherited all those technological advancements and that tech, and that r&d and uh, industrial infrastructure so they did not have to create all this from scratch that's why they are able to develop world class military hardware despite having a small and shrinking economy because they have the benefit of all the iterations of submarine designs that have been uh, created since the 1950s and the various fighter jet designs that uh, the sukhoi and the mikoya and grovich grovich and other design factories have uh, produced over the decades and so on and so forth they they were one of the first powers to develop uh, rockets so their rockets their initial rockets were based on german designs 
and then they iteratively progressed upon that improved upon that and that's why they have very good rockets today they have some of the most powerful rocket rockets in the world they are developing even more powerful rockets so it's because they inherited all the work that was done during the soviet union that's why they were able to do this and india did not invest in r and d did not invest in its own uh military infrastructure and all that until very recently so we just kept on buying arms weapons etc and and uh, military systems hardware from other countries from the ussr and later from the west because because politicians somehow benefited from that and that's why they did not allow indian scientists to develop home grown versions of these weapons so until recently we were we were buying howitzers cannons etc from bofors from sweden we, we are still buying aircraft fighter aircraft from other countries we are now slowly uh, creating the infrastructure and the capabilities to make our own weapons but it is going to take time so that is what's keeping us behind and also we don't have a research oriented academic system our eminent scientists and professors they don't do any real research have you heard of any genuine research significant research being done in india in the past 30 40 50 years nothing we do have drdo we do have hindustan hal these organizations but they are simply creating hardware and weapon systems that are imitations of what has already been created in the west in the us in russia in europe in china we are simply trying to catch up we are not creating something that is cutting edge first of its kind we are not doing that so that is the problem we there is no innovation there is no culture of innovation in the govern in the government in the bureaucracy because all of these institutes institutions are run by bureaucrats and the bureaucratic mind is not your ordinary indian mind it is a colonized mind so these are the, some of the problems that are keep that are keeping india behind okay mr or miss mohanty says how to change the post colonial inferiority complex of the people of bharat for example when we say that these things were present in our ancient scriptures in science or in our ancient civilization people don't believe it but if we say that certain western scientists historians doctors anybody proved it then people immediately start believing it why do we people of bharat always need a western reference to believe our own things here is the thing again i would i will give the same example if an indian scientist comes up with a discovery or some some new thing it we indians will be very skeptical but when a western researcher points something out then indians readily believe it why is that it's very simple have you heard of any indian scientist or any indian scientific institution coming up with a major discovery or major breakthrough in science in physics in technology in chemistry in biochemistry biology molecular biology anything any field in physics in science has any scientist in india or any institute in india come up with us with any new discovery or breakthrough in the past 50 years or 70 years world class breakthrough nothing 
because there is no r- real research happening in india and that's why indians don't believe indian scientists but when somebody from the west points something out indians believe it because the west has been achieving things they have been building breakthrough after breakthrough in technology look at uh, the technology that we have today it's all western technology it's, it's all been developed in the west right computing telecommunications indians did not develop it we are simply consuming it we are consumers our scientists are not leaders our scientists are not researchers that's the real problem and it is not because we, our scientists are not good enough it's because they are not allowed <laughs> to do anything india's academic system it unfortunately prioritizes mediocrity over or brilliance it identifies talent and destroys it and it promotes mediocrity you will see that in the iits you will see it in other institutes you will see mediocre professors who rise to the top mediocre researchers who don't who don't do any real research no real research so that's why indians don't believe it when some indian scientist says something but when somebody somebody from abroad says it indians believe it so what is the way around this we have to reform the system we have to create a system that rewards talent and destroys mediocrity it punishes mediocrity and rewards talent then you will see all kinds of innovations discoveries inventions and breakthroughs coming out of india and that's when indians will start believing in themselves it's as simple as that reforms india needs reforms when will the reforms happen we need reforms in the education system we need reforms in the academic system we need research oriented universities not teaching oriented universities and so on and so forth so i have spoken about these things extensively in previous episodes you can check it out okay shubham says why is it hard to develop a model that can predict earthquakes because we don't have sufficient data see the earthquake earthquakes are something that happen inside the earth's crust so you can pre- pre- predict something in a system when you have the complete data of the system when it comes to things that are happening below the surface of, of the earth we don't know what's happening we don't have sensors there we don't have instruments down deep under the earth's surface much of what's happening below the surface is unknown to us we don't have the data and when you don't have sufficient data you can't make any predictions so that is why it is almost impossible to predict earthquakes because we don't have data of what's happening below the surface of the earth the the subterranean world is almost unknown to us we don't know almost we know next to nothing about what lies below the surface of the earth we have some understanding of how thick the earth's crust is how thick the mantle is how thick is the magma layer what is the convection zone the core of the earth we have some idea of this but it's a very rudimentary idea we 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 really haven't gone there and seen how it is so because we have so such an insufficient data that's why we are not able to predict earthquakes Karan says can i understand advanced mathematics like calculus tensors ordinary differential equations partial differential equations etc just through self study of course you can whatever i have learned is entirely through, through self study i have never learned a single thing in school college or university in class no teacher has ever taught me anything 
whatever I have learned in my life is only through 100% self-study. Whether it comes to mathematics, whether it comes to physics, science, history, geopolitics, anything. I am entirely self-taught. If I can do it, so can you. Right? So you can study mathematics from, from the very beginning up to the up to the as advanced as you want to get, entirely through through self-study. Mathematics, see, learning mathematics is very simple. It's all about solving problems. The more problems you solve, the more you understand the patterns of mathematics, the hidden patterns, right? And the laws and all that. So you can do it very easily on your own, self-study. You can learn anything, tensors, tensor algebra, tensor calculus, differential equations, matrices, whatever, whatever you want. It's all possible. Anvay says, what is more mathematical, economics or physics? Both use a lot of math, but some of the topics are common, while some are exclusive to the respective sciences. I think economics is not as mathematical as physics. Physics, I mean, all the mathematics that you can imagine is used in physics, but not, but only some of it is used in economics. I think you need calculus and differential equations. You need some matrices and some linear algebra, etc. In, in, in economics, but not much beyond that. But when it comes to physics, we essentially use all of mathematics in physics. So it is certainly physics that is more mathematical than economics. Uh, Bharat says, I am from India South. Had you read anything about freedom fighters from India South? Between 1900 to 1950 in your schools, do India, do in do Northern India schools teach anything about South India's freedom fighters, kings, anything good in general? In school, we only read about Bhagat Singh, Gandhi, Nehru, Bose, etc. We respect them all. But curious to know whether North really knows about the South. I think the South has been greatly neglected in India's textbooks. That is undeniable. We know very little about the South of India. Very little is taught in school about uh, southern India as compared to northern India. Until 2016, 2017, nobody had heard of the, of the Chola dynasty. It is because of social media that today people know about the Cholas. Because of people posting about the Chola empire on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, etc. That's why people know today about the Cholas. Our history textbooks did not teach anything about the Cholas or about the Cheras, the Pandyas, and various other uh, other kings from southern India, right? So there has certainly been a, a significant neglect of southern India in the education system. The education system has always been Delhi-centric, North India-centric. And this disparity, this neglect of the south, which is not as bad as the neglect of the east and the northeast, but it is there. And this has been used by the Dravidian parties to, to, to claim that uh, the South is marginalized. And this is because of the Aryan-Dravidian divide and all that. So it is these very poor policies of the previous governments in India that have led to this, uh, that have uh, given the chance to the political parties in Southern India, the Dravidian parties, to create this sense of alienation. It is very unfortunate. A great deal of harm has been done to the, to the uh, integrity and unity of the country by these policies of the Nehruvian, Nehruvian regime and post-Nehruvian regimes. 
very unfortunate so i agree that 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 there is very little that is taught in school in history about the kings and the empires and kingdoms and freedom fighters and culture etc of the southern parts of india sandeep says what is the connection between jewish characters of abraham and sara and the hindu gods brahma and saraswati there is no connection none that i know of that's it the the uh, jewish tradition the abrahamic tradition is very different from the indian tradition uh, as far as from from the best that i know there is absolutely no connection between these jewish characters and the hindu gods none none that i that i know of uh, tanushri says can isro join the artemis accord as india is one of the main allies russia's took themselves out of the artemis accord and plan to start their own lunar program with china india can certainly join the program i even heard in the news some time ago that there is some discussion about india participating in this the thing is that this is a us led initiative and the us will never leave uh, will never allow some other country to take the lead in this it will always be us first everybody else later so if india wants to be a major player in geopolitics in space and become a major civilization again then india should do it on its own india has the ability to create a lunar program and space program of its own a world class program we have all the raw, raw ingredients we have all all the we have everything in place to do it it's just about the political will so i think it will be best for india to participate to some extent but have our own separate program to reach the moon and go beyond Shankarjit says does the current indian government care too much about elections than doing the right thing why did they revert the three farm laws to appease some protesting farmers when it benefited many other farmers do you support this move see we don't have sufficient data or information to say why they did this and i don't think it's a political move to win elections in punjab or to appease some farmers there is something much bigger than this going on i think it's a national security issue which is why they have done this so i think i don't have enough information to 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 know why this has been done but i would say that we should support the government mr modi knows what he is doing i mean if you look at his past track record he has usually made good decisions so i think we should support him and give him the time until 2024 to do achieve whatever he is trying to achieve now does the current indian government care too much about elections you have to care about elections in a democratic electoral system you lose an election you go out of power would you like this government to go out of power and would like a nehruvian kind of regime to come back in power in india would you is that what you would like the government has to prioritize elections that is the system we live in if they don't care about elections somebody else will come to power and then what happens to all the plans they have for the future of the country it's going to go backwards so the government has to care about elections they have no option they have no alternative that is the nature of the system you are in it is an electoral system without elections you're done you're finished so it has to care about elections and 
I don't think people should be upset about that. Okay, we should always have one question about aliens. So how would we react to finding aliens? Can alien civilizations become a threat to humanity? Let's say you are walking on a dark road in the middle of the night and some unknown person comes towards you. How would you react to that? (laughs) You would react with extreme caution, right? Because you don't know whether this person is good or bad, whether this person represents a threat or not. Similarly, if we were to find intelligent aliens, we would have to react with extreme caution. We have to assume the worst. We have to assume that they are a threat. They are a threat to humanity. And we will have to take all necessary precautions in that case. So the reaction to finding aliens will be a reaction of extreme caution. And it can certainly pose a major threat to humanity. All right, my friends, that brings us to an end of all these questions. It's almost two hours. Let me take a couple of live chat questions, if I can. Can I, do I have any interesting questions, live questions going on right now? Garwal, farmers, ah, this is interesting. Her says the farmers are still going to march onto the parliament and the protests will still continue on other issues. What should the government do in such a case? Should repeal of laws be revoked? I think one of the good effects of the repeal of these laws is that it going, it's going to show that the, these so-called farmers who are protesting have some other agenda. The agenda was not the repeal of the farm laws. Even though the farm laws have now been repealed, they are still protesting. Until now, they were claiming they are protesting because the farm laws are bad. So what are they protesting about now? It is very clear now that the agenda is to destabilize the country. So I think it is good that they are doing this. It should now be highlighted that the agenda was not simply the repeal of the farm laws. It is something else. I don't think the government will repeal the farm will repeal or, or revoke the repeal of the farm laws, but some action will have to be taken if, if this goes out of hand. So this is a good question. One China policy I have already spoken about. Uh, long-term allies, long-term ally US or Russia, long-term allies India. We have to go alone. Allies will always keep changing. There are only temporary alliances and temporary adversarial relationships. There is no long-term alliance. Uh, Russia is not powerful enough to be a viable ally. The US, I don't know how much we can trust the US because they only, I mean, they should care about their own national interest. Uh, Right now, uh, the common enemy is China. So we can have a temporary alliance with the US, but the US will never tolerate a real rise of India as a potential superpower. So we will have to keep that in mind. Is there any other question? Okay, let me see. Was Akbar secular? No, thank you. He was not. No, what is secularism? Secularism is the separation of church and state. It doesn't apply in the Indian context. So, no, Akbar was not secular by any means. Joseph says, what is Dharma? Dharma is the Indian um, 
is the Indian tradition essentially the the different schools of thought of India of India's uh, socio cultural and spiritual traditions. You have a number, I think, nine schools of thought: Charvaka, Mimamsa, Bodh, Jaina, uh, Vedanta, Sankhya, Yoga, and so on and so forth. Nine of these schools of thought. And there are many other schools of thought too. So all of these taken together, these, these represent different worldviews, different philosophical and spiritual worldviews. Some of them accept the existence of some kind of God. Some of them are explicitly polytheistic. Some of them reject the existence of God. Most of them believe in the law of karma and so on and so forth. So the sum total of all of this, it's a very diverse array of of worldviews but the sum total sum total all of, of of all this is dharma and you to to simplify matters what is prescribed in the vedas is dharma but again some of these schools of thought like jaina and bodha jaina essentially they reject the authority of the vedas so does charvaka and uh, in terms of the bodha dharma people some people say it rejects the vedas some people say it does not uh, if you if you read the deathbed discourse of gautam buddha he essentially says that the vedas are correct so it's a matter of conjecture some controversy but all of this taken together is dharma so that's a very simplistic and brief answer to this question all right my friends i'm going to conclude here Thank you very much for all your questions. I got more than 650 questions this time. So many great questions. Very interesting questions. I could only pick up a few. So keep it coming, guys and girls. Thank you so much for all of your participation, your viewership, your support. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. And I will see you same time, same channel tomorrow night. Until then, take care. Bye.